It's May 26th, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Thanks again to all of you who've posted comments and reviews in the iTunes Music Store, as well as on your own blogs regarding the show. Um, I, I love hearing the comments and uh, about the show and what it means to you guys, and it really, it's very encouraging to me. And it helps keep me going in terms of putting out a show every couple of weeks. Well, today we have another great show for you, but before we begin, I wanted to help to spread the word out on a former guest of the show, Bruce Smith, who was in the United States in June teaching a variety of master classes on fashion and portrait photography in different locations throughout the, uh, the country. And uh, well, here's a word from him regarding what he's doing next month. You're coming here to the States. Tell us about what you're doing here. Ah, well, I'm actually uh, I'm doing a series of uh, masterclasses and workshops whilst I'm there, starting in New York next week, starting on Monday. Uh, I'm doing a three-day studio class with a one-day Photoshop class. Then I'm doing exactly the same thing in Chicago, which is uh, really nice. I was there last year, had a great time. And then I'm moving from Chicago. I'm going to Los Angeles for a week. And then uh, the week after, I'm going to San Francisco. And I'm also then going to Miami for a week. So basically, if you work it like this, the first week in June, I'm in New York. Second week in June, I'm in Chicago. Third week in June, I'm in Los Angeles. Fourth week in June, I'm in San Francisco. And the first week in July, I'm in Miami. So, But uh, Miami, Los Angeles, and uh, San Francisco are actually location classes. So I'm teaching people how to use their diffusion screens and their reflectors and fill in flash and stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. So who do you think this, 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 this workshop is, is for? Who's the ideal candidate? To, to, you know, this well, I think for any young aspiring fashion photographer uh, or, or somebody who's already shooting fashion, they want to improve their skills. Perhaps they've found themselves stuck in the studio for the last five years and they want to get out there and learn how to deal with available light and reflectors and diffusion screens and fill in flash and stuff. So um, I also find an awful lot of my students come from the portrait and wedding sector. Um, uh, again, perhaps these people are shooting seniors' pictures and they want to improve their seniors' pictures. Um, uh, it's a complete mixed bag, really, everybody from students to people on their second career. I don't know if actually you've read any of the articles and things about what my philosophy is, Zibaronix, but... Uh, um, uh, key thing is actually entertaining your client, entertaining the viewer of the pictures. So this takes an awful lot of input from the photographer at the time of shooting. So um, uh, this is the key area. This is one of the sort of big areas that I actually teach people. It's to put <clears throat> energy and emotion into their pictures. And where can people find more information about it? And it's not too late to, to register, particularly for the, the no, first No, at all. No, there's a, there are a few spaces left. So if anybody wants to sort of uh, check out my website, it's sprucesmithphotographer.com forward slash home dot php. And uh, you'll see there, there'll be links to studio classes and location classes. And then uh, if they find that they can't find any information there, they can email me at b.s at mac.com. So... Any questions, just far away. 
You know, I've had the pleasure of actually seeing Bruce at work, and I learned so much from just a couple of hours from him that I know that if you have any interest in fashion, portrait, or people photography of any sort, um, having the opportunity to learn under Bruce Smith would be a real, real treasure for you. So check it out on, on his site, as he mentioned. But today's guest is Lewis Kemper, who is a friend and a fellow photographer who I've known from my years at Outdoor Photographer and even before then. Uh, he's a regular columnist for PC Photo Magazine and Outdoor Photographer. He teaches at BetterPhoto.com as well as a variety of different workshops, not only uh, throughout the United States, but different parts of the world. He is a wonderful photographer, and he is just one of those great souls that I've had the opportunity to meet during my my life as a as a photographer. Um, I enjoyed our conversation. We actually started the interview in uh, Florida, but uh, because of technical difficulties, I had to re-record uh, the entire interview. And he was so gracious to uh, allow me to do it again this morning, for which I thank him. But for now, let's sit back and enjoy our conversation with Lewis Kemper. Well, Lewis, thank you for doing this again. <laughs> You're quite welcome. I appreciate it. Um, okay, how does a guy from from Baltimore end up becoming, you know, a nature and a wildlife photographer? Because I would think that, you know, coming up. You know, in a major city that that's probably not in the forefront of your mind growing up, is it? Well, I was always actually into nature and that kind of thing. Um, where I, my, the first house that we lived in, just pretty much right across the street from us, was a stream that ran through a fairly big stream. Um, and I used to go down the stream all the time and, you know, catch tadpoles and trap fish and crayfish and you know, that kind of thing as a kid. So I always had an interest in, in wildlife and nature and uh, outdoor kind of stuff. And my parents weren't into that kind of thing in camping or whatever, but once I got to high school and, you know, had some friends that got together and we got into camping and we would go on camping trips and stuff on the weekend. Um, when I started taking pictures in high school, you know, I just always went to the woods to take my pictures and... Uh, so I always kind of had that bent and that lean towards it, I guess. But, you know, growing up kind of in the city area and in more of a metropolitan area, you know, I never had, you know, like that grand landscape and uh, Wild West kind of feeling to the images that you get, you know, back east. And I remember in my high school photography class, you know, one of the... That was where my first uh, exposure to Ansel Adams was, and my high school teacher showing us, you know, a book of Ansel's work. And I can remember the first picture, you know, that I saw was um, the picture of Mount Williamson with the big boulders in the front and the sun kind of streaming down on the mountain in the back. And I remember looking at that picture and saying, I've got to go there. And, uh, so that was always my goal, was to save up and buy a van and hit the road when I got out of school. And you went to um, George Washington University before you, you, you made that move? Yes, I went to George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and that was even much more uh, uh, urban because I grew up sort of in the suburbs of Baltimore. So, you know, in, in D.W., we were, you know, pretty much right downtown uh, Washington, D.C., just a few blocks from the White House. So we would go out um, on the weekends and drive down to Shenandoah or go out to Western Maryland or something to photograph. 
for the things that I like to do. And fortunately, my photography teacher in college, he lived out way out in the countryside in Virginia, and we kind of meet at his place, you know, in the dark and go out and drive around the countryside where he lived or uh, Harper's Ferry area of West Virginia and uh, out on the Potomac River and stuff like that. Were you, were you, when you were studying fine art photography there, was the focus more on, on commercial work or, uh, you know, it's just, you know, um, schools of photography have changed a lot. Um, and even if the focus is fine art photography, it, it doesn't seem that these days there's even much of a focus on, on nature and, and wildlife as, as an aspect of fine art, even though it is. How was it when you were coming up um, during that time in terms of, of fine art related to, you know, natural and wildlife. Was was that the focus, or, or was it more um, something else? Well, in school, our focus, um, the program was heavily oriented into the zone system. We shot lots of little squares and did a lot of processing tests and that kind of thing. But uh, my teacher... You know, he was a fan of Ansel's also and, you know, had an Ansel printing on his wall in his office. And he did a lot of, um, a lot of nature stuff. And then he also did a lot, he did a fair amount of people and portraits and kind of thing too and multiple exposures with his, his uh, personal work. But the program pretty much let you photograph, you know, what you wanted in context but it was definitely not a commercial oriented at all. I mean, we didn't do any studio lighting or, you know, anything talking about business or making money or surviving. It was, you know, all about different processes and, you know, working. Um, oh, we did alternative processes and stuff, cyanotypes and all those kind of things where we mixed our own emulsions and that type of work and, and you know, heavily concentrated on the zone system. And so since he was into the zone system and Ansel and minor white and stuff, uh, landscape kind of fit in, and, and you got away with it, I guess, more than you would have at some other programs that were um, more art-based or whatever. You know, the nature and, and wildlife photography was not what it is today. I mean, the people who were, you know, people weren't really thinking about it in terms of this is a, a way to make a living. You know what I mean? Right. There was a, it was there was the work of Ansel Adams, Minor White. They were appreciated, you know, increasingly in the galleries, but it, it was never seen as a way of really making a living. When you bought that van and you drove out, you know, drove out west, what were you what were you hoping for in terms of your your not only your work but but your career and your livelihood? Yeah, well, I don't know. I was, you know, like 20 years old, 21 years old, so I wasn't thinking too much about that. But I, what I wanted to do was just go out and, and see the West and photograph it and sort of, you know, start my, my library and my collection. I had no idea what I was going to do with that library and that collection. But, um, you know, that was sort of my goal of going out West and just kind of seeing it all for myself and photographing it. And um, I had no idea what I was going to do with those pictures and how I was going to make a living. You know, I, I remember one of my ideas was, you know, thinking of doing art fairs and that kind of thing. And um, I tried that for a very short while and realized that that just wasn't something I was interested in doing. It was way too much work for way too little reward for me at the time anyway. But, um, you know, as far as actually making a living and... and uh, turning it into something that would become a livelihood, I had no clue of how I was going to do that. Um, 
and really didn't start developing that until I landed at the Ansel Adams Gallery in Yosemite and got my job there and, you know, then got more involved with, you know, seeing how it was, that kind of work was used in, in publications and that kind of thing, and sort of gearing more towards shooting stock and working with um, publications and magazines, uh, calendars, cards, and those kind of types of things. You know, when we were in uh, Florida, we were talking about that experience there and how having the opportunity to meet all these accomplished and emerging photographers in that sort of space was really impacted you and, and your work. Can you tell our listeners a little more about about what that time uh, in Yosemite and with at the Ansel Adams Gallery meant to you and your work? Oh, yeah, um, that was just like a dream come true. I mean, like I said, I was like 21 years old or something, driving around the country, pretty much ran out of money, had about $40 left in Seattle, and I was staying with a friend and trying to figure out what to do. And um, I had been to Yosemite earlier the year before and decided that I, you know, I liked it there and it was a nice place to hang out. And, you know, obviously a nice place to photograph, so I just called down from Seattle from my friend's house to the concession in the park and asked if they were hiring and they said yes and I didn't ask what for or anything. It was September and most of the college kids had gone back to college and you know, they were looking for help basically to get through the winter so I filled up the van with gas and drove straight down from Seattle to Yosemite. You know, didn't know pretty much you know how the park worked. I knew there was you know the major concession which at that time was the Yosemite Park and Curry Company and just went to their office and you know, applied for a job and got a job at the dishwasher at the Wani Hotel. And, you know, I remember calling home and telling my parents, you know, that I was washing dishes at the Wani Hotel and my dad would tell all his friends that I was out in California in the ceramics. <laughs> and uh, but from the being in the park, you know, I realized um, rather quickly that the Ansel Adams gallery was also was a separate concession excuse me, within the park. And, you know, they did their own hiring and they were outside of the, the major concession. And I also learned that the person who had kind of run the photography counter and the film counter back then had recently left the job and they, they were looking for somebody to do photography. So as soon as I found that out, you know, I quickly ran over there and applied for the job and was very fortunate and got the job. So I quit my dishwashing days after six weeks and moved over to the gallery and that was like oh I guess December when I got the job in the gallery so at the start of winter time and back then Yosemite in the winter was a pretty quiet place so you'd be in the gallery and if we had I don't know if we had 10 or 20 customers in a day in the winter time back then that was probably a busy day so you didn't have a whole lot to do which I thought was great because the walls were just covered with Ansel Adams prints the bookshelves were lined with all the books on photography, so you know I was getting paid to sit there and read the books and look at Apple's pictures, and that was a pretty wonderful job as far as I was concerned. And then when the summertime came, um, Ansel was still teaching his workshops in Yosemite at the time, so part of my responsibilities were to order all the materials that they needed for the workshops, and they would send me the list of all the films to get, whatever else that they needed own system meters that went on your spot meters back then and uh, all those kind of things so I remember getting all excited when the workshops were coming you know and Ansel was coming to the gallery and 
then when the workshops happened, it was like my history of photography class that I took in college just became live and living in person. All the people that I studied in college were there in front of me. I mean, even Beaumont Duhall, who wrote the book on the history of photography that we studied in college, was there. Ernest Hosky, Paul Caponegro, and Marika Sinda, Ruth Bernard, and it was just just an amazing time for a young photographer to be um, thrown around with all those people and get to share my work with those people and get to see their work and sit in on all the gallery sessions. It was just um, just a great thing and, mm-hmm. you know, one of the highlights of, of my lifetime. You know, Ansel Adams has become such an icon, not just in the world of photography, but just just in the country. But what did you take from him that you really appreciated personally um, from your from the time that you spent with him? Yeah, I'd say it was his willingness to share with the students. He was just always so open to looking at people's work and talking about their work and, and hearing, you know, they all, of course, wanted to hear about him, but he always wanted to hear about them and they wanted to see their pictures. And, you know, he always found something nice to say about whatever he was looking at and then would offer his um, suggestions and things of how to improve it. But it was always done in such a positive, friendly way that, you know, even people who came in there in total all of him, you know, left feeling like they had had a good, constructive conversation with a friend. And that was something I always kind of took to heart and tried to carry out whenever I did my workshops and teaching and and writing and things. Mm. And speaking of the writing, you're known to most of our, our listeners as a result of the, you know, the columns and the articles that you've written for a variety of different magazines, including Outdoor Photographer and PC Photo Magazine and, and others. When did writing start playing a role in in your career, and how important do you think it's been towards um, the success that you've achieved as a as a photographer? Yeah, I guess the first writing that I did was when I was still. Um working at the gallery uh, that concession the Yosemite Park and Curry Company wanted to do a photographer's road guide basically to Yosemite and they approached me to write it and of course you know you always say you can do something even if you have no idea if you can or not so I said sure you know I could do that and I was thinking of how you know I like the first year in freshman uh, English in college I had to retake that class you know and everything and I was thinking my teacher would probably be like laughing if you found out that I took a contract to write a book but um, I did and you know I started writing that and that worked out pretty well and was successful and then I got invited to uh, Yellowstone to do a similar book uh, for that part of the concession there and you know realized that I could string words together and people could understand them I you know I needed help in grammar and spelling but um, at least this sentences made sense, I think, to people. So I decided, you know, that was kind of a good thing. And then I got started really with the magazines um, through, it was just kind of sort of lucky. I had a picture in the Sierra Club calendar the year that Outdoor Photographer started up. And when Steve Werner was starting the magazine, what he did is he sent out a letter to every photographer that had a picture in the Sierra Club calendars that year. He said, we're starting up this magazine we're looking for ideas, you know, we want kind of how-to stories and, you know, technical articles and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, so send in your, your queries and suggestions. So I remember, you know, putting this whole package together and writing, um, you know, a query letter and coming up with three or four different article ideas. And I sent them a copy of the handbooks that I wrote on Yellowstone and Yosemite. 
and I had published some self-published poster or two at that time and sent them those and just this whole big package and months went by and I never heard a word from them. And a friend of mine was getting married down in San Diego and I had to, and I was driving to the wedding and had to go through LA. So I called up you know, Warner Publications and I made an appointment to go see Steve. And I remember driving you know, there and walking into his office and you know, to me it was this huge office. I don't remember, you know, in reality it was quite as big. But he was sitting at this desk and we're sitting there. I brought in my portfolio and I presented him all the same ideas I had sent in that package and we had this great conversation and I showed him my prints that I had been working on and printing Cibachromes at the time. And we went through all this and at the time he assigned me three articles. So once we were all done and I you know, said, this is a done deal now, right? You've assigned me these things. And he said, yes. I said, okay, now I want to ask you a question. He said, I sent you all the same stuff three months ago, four months ago and I haven't heard a single word. You know, Now I show you this and you're interested in it. And he turned around and they pointed to the corner of the office that I hadn't noticed before. They said, oh yeah, it's probably over there. And literally from the floor to the ceiling were two stacks of stuff that all had gotten mailed in when he sent out those uh, letters to everybody. And my package was in there somewhere. <laughs> I hadn't, if I hadn't made the trip and stopped you know, in to see him, you know, who knows how many months or years it would have been before he got to him or if he ever got through that whole entire pile. So I came away with those three articles um, from him. And actually, the very first article I did for him was based on one of my college um, photography classes on how to shoot. And then it was called ASA, ASA instead of ISO, but how to shoot a film speed test, basically, for your color slides. And that was the first article I wrote. <laughs> and, and then I continued to do those three articles. and. Know, kept writing, you know, more query letters that, you know, pitching more and more ideas to him, and they kept taking them. So eventually, he made me a contributing editor to the magazine, and that was a great thing because I was in, you know, the company of Galen Rao and Leonard Larue and uh, Dewitt Jones and stuff. So that made me you know, feel important and proud. And then I kind of got into the digital stuff. Pretty early on, I had an Amiga computer because I bought that because it was the first real, you know, color computer. It had 4,096 colors when everybody else had two, and I they had some really crude photographic, you know, digital darkroom type software there, and I was playing around with that. I remember HP came out with their first inkjet um, color printer and. I wrote to them and told them I was interested in this technology and asked if I could borrow one. And they sent me one and I made these prints and I sent this, you know, query in to the outdoor photographer. And they just wrote back, uh, no, thank you. You know, we're not ready for something like this at this time. It's the quality's not there and whatever. So I just kind of kept playing around with it and kept bugging them for digital ideas. So a couple years later, when they started PC Photo Magazine, they had me start writing my column for that magazine. When when did you start embracing color? Because you talked about early on, you were when you were first studying photography, you were largely rooted in, in the zone system, and that probably a lot of the work being done um, at the Ansel Adams Gallery was black and white. But when did you start discovering and embracing color as part of your your palette? Actually, I started color right away for me. Even in high school, I I enjoyed shooting color slides more than I did the black and white stuff. And in college, 
you know, I said the emphasis really was on the zone system, and we did, you know, tons of that black and white testing, and I still have my zone system book that we made back in college with all my little squares and the results of all my plus and minus exposure tests and things. And uh, But I always like to shoot color, and I took as many of the color classes as I could, and that same teacher, even though he had a real emphasis in black and white, really was a big influence and helped me learn to see color and color shifts, and he was always testing me on my ability to see colors and, and how they interacted. And so I was I was always doing both and always preferred you know, the color more myself, I think, than the black and white. One of the challenges, I think, about color, particularly in nature, is that color can easily overwhelm a photograph to the point that it it you may see it as a strength, but it ends up becoming a, a, a distraction. Um, so how do you, how did you sort of navigate that? Was the fact that you had a, had a foundation based on, you know, black and white, um, imagery, the anchor that sort of helped you be able to effectively use color so that it wasn't that? Yeah, I think so. Cause you know, when you're working in black and white, you're thinking more in terms of tonal values and, um, well, almost more in the graphic design than the reality sort of of what the scene is. And so I've always kind of incorporated that into my color work and still thinking about the graphics of the image and then how those colors relate and interact with each other and have been able to kind of put those together and use them uh, to help each other, I guess, in a way. I've seen you... Um use HDHDR software um, that allows you to expand the, the, the dynamic range of, uh, of a scene in, in, with, a digital, with a digital camera. But one of the things that I've seen is in, in terms of handling of color, it introduces a whole new set of challenges in terms of, of how you use and you manage color because of the expanded tonal range and because of how the software ends up interpreting interpreting the color. To my taste, I, I, I sometimes think it gets out of hand in terms of color. But how do you use the, the, that particular tool, um, not only in terms of color, but in terms of tonal range and, and interpreting a, a natural scene? Yeah, I, you know, the HDR software, and personally I use um, the, HDR, the one by HDR Soft Photomatics Pro to do most of my um, combining of the HDR images. And it's very easy with that software to, um, I'd say, go very unrealistic in the color and oversaturate and make the color just not quite look, you know, realistic. I mean, it can look nice, but it just doesn't look very realistic. So I've, you know, experimented a lot with the sliders and, you know, learned not to push the saturation all the way up and to try to keep it looking a little more realistic. And I'll even process those images sometimes in the HDR software, a little less saturated than, than I would even want it to be in the final, and then fine-tune my color work in Photoshop to make it look more realistic. And I find, you know, I mean, most of the time I show people the HDR stuff and, you know, they don't even realize that it was done that way because it looks too realistic compared to a lot of the stuff that you're seeing out there. And that's kind of my goal is to not make you think about, you know, how the image was taken, but to think about what the image itself is. And 
what I find with the HDR software is it just allows me to photograph things that I could never do in the past. And when I was shooting slide photography, I mean, I always taught my students, you know, that you exposed for the highlights and you prayed for your shadows. <laughs> and with HDR software, you can get, you know, full tonal range and have pictures that, you know, look like what your eye sees. And, you know, I mean, you can even get more detail than what your eye sees if you want to into an image. So to me, it just opened up a whole new avenue of photography and things that I used to have to walk away from, like shooting directly into the sun because everything else would just turn a silhouette. You'd lose all the detail of what was in the foreground. So unless you had, you know, a truly strong graphical image, you know, there was really no way you could shoot those types of images. Or even sometimes, you know, shooting in the midday, which used to be, you know, I guess basically taboo because of that contrast range problem that we had. You can now shoot in the middle of the day and get, you know, pleasing results because you can have the full tonal range and not blow out areas of detail in the highlights and keep your information in your shadows. So for me, it's like opened up just a, you know, a whole new world of, of taking pictures and, and there's, not, there's no restrictions anymore, basically, is what it comes down to. So I think it's, to me, one of the best um, things to come out of this whole digital revolution. Yeah, you've, you've, you've so rarely embraced you know, a lot of the aspects that digital photography has provided, not only in terms of capturing, but in terms of printing. But one of the more recent things that you've done is that you've produced a, a book um, using the, the blurb, uh, blurb system of, 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 of putting together a book. Talk to us about what inspired you to do your own book and what you were hoping uh, to convey uh, with it. Well, I always wanted to do a book, you know, like a monograph, and I just remember Ansel's monographs, and where you just you know share your favorite personal work, and you don't have to worry about really trying to please the publisher and uh, hitting a mass audience type thing. So the idea of self-publishing it, and then you know when the companies like Blurb or My Publisher or you know the iBook things come along, it just gives photographers the opportunity to to do something, again, that we could never really do in the past. You can never create your own book and, you know, print 10 copies or 20 copies or a couple hundred copies in the past because it was way too cost prohibitive. So this was kind of fun because, um, you know, I got to lay out and design, and you're a little restricted with the templates and stuff you can get from Blurb, but you can also kind of modify them to a degree and, you know, hopefully... You know, more and more in the future you'll, you'll be even more and more flexible but it was kind of fun to, to lay out a design and think about how the pictures interacted with each other and you know kind of a flow through the book and uh, making sure your pairs looked good together and sort of were grouped in themes and basically I call my book's called Capturing the Light and you know I write in the afterward at the end you know how I've been you know a nature photographer for you know 30 some years now and basically following the light when I used to teach a lot of um, field workshops with William Neal and Jeff Nixon we always you know uh, talked about how we were riding the light so I just filled the book basically with quotes from you know famous people about light and um, interacted those with my images and uh, I'm kind of proud of it. I think I put together a fairly nice package so far. It's got some, you know, everybody that I've shown it to, and you know, I've sold several copies in the last week since it's come out. You know, probably about 20, 30 copies, and 
everybody's real happy with it. You know, telling me what a great job it is. Really enjoying the book. So it's just been kind of a fun experience. And it's not something I expect to sell, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of. But I do lots of talks and presentations around the country and wanted to have something that people could walk away with. People are always asking, you know, about a book. So now I have something that I can share with them and sell to them while I'm doing this. So it'll be fun to fun to do, I think. You know, the, when you're speaking of the light, the images that I see highlighted here in the in the book, I mean, the light is just absolutely just phenomenal. And what it does to the different colors and tones and shapes in the scene are really transformative. Um, one of the challenges people face, though, is, is getting to locations and being able to have the benefit of, of that great light. Um, when you were living in Yosemite, you were there you know, for a long period of time, you know, different, different seasons, different time of the day. So you could benefit from, you know, having a great day of light one day and not having an, uh, another for another. Right. But so, but when you're, when you're traveling, sometimes you're, you're traveling to a location, say for just a, a, a week, how do you, how do you plan for it? And, and what do you do once you're there at a location where you only have a finite amount of time and you're basically at the whims of mother nature? Well, you plan the best you can, and I always do a lot of um, homework, looking at maps, going to Google Earth, uh, looking at as many photographs as I can of the area, trying to get an idea what are the most photogenic places there, trying to figure out where they are on the map, whether they're sunrise places or sunset places. So I try to do as much, you know, basically pre-location scouting as I can, especially if I'm going to a new area, so that I'm not wasting a lot of time once I get there. And then, you know, as a nature photographer, you know, we don't sleep a lot. You're up for, you know, before sunrise every morning and you're going to bed after sunset every day. And, you know, out photographing till then, not eating dinner till 9, 10 o'clock at night, especially in the summertime. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't come together. I remember one trip you know, a couple years ago, a friend of mine that I do a lot of my photo trips with, and we went to the Smoky Mountains and, you know, we were there for a week and I think I took one good picture know in that whole entire week process because the light just never worked out real well uh, the weather wasn't very good right before we had gotten there there had been a huge windstorm and it blew down most of the leaves we were going for fall color and you know I just remember driving around and being really frustrated and uh, you know so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work and you know then you go somewhere I remember one of the one of the best mornings I ever had photographically anywhere was on the Oregon coast one year, and we were up this place called Ecola State, uh, Ecola Beach State Park, and I, I you know I shot through over 134 by five sheets you know in just like two hour time period and you know ran out of film it was so wonderful, so you know it's always hit or miss, and. You know, as a nature photographer, that's the one thing we can't really control. We can, you know, try to prepare for it, but we can't control what's going to happen with the weather and the light. So you just try to put yourself out there as much as you can and put yourself in the right place and, and hope for the best. I mean, as a, as a teacher, oftentimes you're looking at someone else's work and you're able to pick up, you know, uh, a particular strength that someone has as, as a result of looking at a body of work. But, you know, you've been revisiting or planning to revisit a a good amount of your older work. When you look at your own work, 
and you see the progress that you've made over over the many years as a photographer, what do you think is your is your main strengths or, or, or strength as a photographer? Um, yeah, I think my main strength is, is taking advantage of that light and the color relationships in the light and um, making them work harmoniously together in an image and seeing that uh, while I'm there and, and, and you know now with the digital stuff being able to expose for it all properly it is interesting we're talking about you know looking at old work when I started the book thing I decided that it was only going to be you know basically four to five years old and that was as far back as I was going to go because I don't know to me you, you know your favorite pictures are always the last place you were at and then after that you know the stuff before that you're not even that interested in anymore if you're always you know the last thing you did was always your best and your favorite so I decided that I wasn't going to make it like a retrospective and go back 30 years or whatever, and especially because I was dealing with a limited, you know, page count as far as trying to keep the book affordable and stuff. So I decided it was going to be um, just from the last four or five years, limited myself that way. But it was so much fun, you know, and, and going back and looking at stuff. Because, like I said, you know, I get fixed on whatever I did last, and after that, you know, the stuff before that. It seems kind of old and outdated already. Um, so it's fun even just to go back four or five years and start looking through and go, oh yeah, I forgot, you know, kind of about that image and you know, how wonderful that light was that morning. And, you know, that needs to find a place to squeeze in here somewhere or whatever. You know, one of the so hardest. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I just think, you know, the, the hardest thing about being a photographer is editing your own work. And, you know, going through it and figuring out, because you're always so emotionally tied to whatever happened at the time when you were making those images. You know, you got to kind of go beyond that and realize that the person viewing them, you know, wasn't sitting there and wasn't having the same experience that you were. And they're not going to be basing their judgment on, on those, you know, the smells and the sounds that you heard when you were there, just what you're seeing, you know, in the image. So um, I always find that that's the trickiest part. And... You know, being being kind of hard on myself, you know, and it's like, you know, is that really, you know, print-worthy or would you hang that on your wall and, you know, could you live with that for a while type attitude. So, you know, I started off with, you know, going through selecting book images, you know, and then, you know, I started out probably had a couple hundred and had to whittle that down to about 70. So um, you get pretty hardcore on yourself when you have to kind of do that, you know, make it fit you know, it makes you really, you know, pay attention to your best stuff. And I think that always helps you, you know, go back next time you go out to shoot and then you're thinking about it. It's like, what can I do to really make this, you know, book worthy or, or wall worthy or gallery worthy or whatever your you know, standard is? Yeah, I completely agree with you that editing is probably the hardest part of the whole photographic process. So a lot of people talk about, you know, capturing the image or printing something out. But I think sitting in down sitting down and, and winning it down to like, you know, twenty photographs or sixty photographs can be really difficult, especially as the number count goes down and down and down. And I think right. one of the one of the things is is that a lot of you know people who aspire to do the kind of work you're doing is they often think about okay having to put together a portfolio which typically comes down to maybe 20, 20 images. You see a lot, you see a lot of work. What do you think right. are, are are the are the key things that someone needs to do in order to be able to put 
a really strong body of, of work together, whether it's going to be in a self-published book like the one you did or, or just a portfolio that they're going to take around to, to you know, magazine editors or art gallery owners. Right. I think is, um, in some ways, has some type of unifying, you know, source or, or theme to the pictures. And, you know, even if it's not subject-wise, you know, like in my book, it's capturing the light, so all of the images you know, are really about the light in those particular pictures. So, you know, that can be your theme, you know, if you're doing a whole portfolio on water or a whole portfolio, you know, on, you know, certain types of landscapes or even on a place, uh, you know, a single subject. But, you know, not to bounce around and have something that's so different than everything else. you got to try to make it consistent so that the person who's looking at them, especially when you're trying to go towards, like, you know, a gallery or a book editor or something, you know, a magazine editor, that you're you're gearing that towards, you know, that particular subject. I mean, if you're, you know, going to a, uh, you know, just trying to think of like a magazine, that would be typical, like, you know, a Sierra Club or something, you know, you got to really gear the pictures towards that. Or if it's a magazine that's more sports, you know, outdoor sports oriented, you know, you don't want to all have, like, or even something like National Geographic Adventurer, which has a lot of people and doing their stuff in the outdoors. You don't want to just show them all pictures of pretty scenes because they want to see people interacting in those scenes. So you got to gear your portfolio and your theme to you know to the audience that you're after, basically. And what I see a lot, especially in beginning students, is there's just the whole mix. You know, it'll be the the big landscapes and then the macro pictures and then, you know, the middle of the day pictures and then the nice light pictures and it's this whole big hodgepodge of images and um, you know, it's kind of, I remember teaching with Philip Hyde who was you know, one of my favorite color photographers and uh, was a good mentor towards me and, you know, when he would, you know, do critiques, he'd always say to some, you know, well, you know, if you throw enough mud up against the wall, you know, some of it's going to stick. But, you know, the idea is not to be slinging all your mud up against the walls. It's figure out, you know, the good ones and just present those. So it's that, you know, that whittling down. And, and it's so hard, especially in the beginning, when you're trying all these different things, you know, and everything is new to you. So it's all just this wonderful experience to you. And that you're, you're trying to share that. And, you know, when you have this whole hodgepodge of work, you're trying to present that to, to somebody else who isn't experiencing all those things that you are when you're doing it uh, makes it a lot more difficult I think so kind of unify your theme to, to some degree I think is, is the number one piece of advice I could give mm-hmm. Well, you teach at a variety of different places. You teach along with me at betterphoto.com, and you also teach at different workshops, you know, all over uh, the country and, and the world. What are you hoping that your students take away from you beyond just the whatever technical knowledge that you have to offer? Yeah, um, well, I think an appreciation for whatever they're doing and to realize that, you know, I mean, so many people today, I think, you know, are doing their photography and, and their whole goal is, you know, they see all of us in the magazines and stuff and that's what they want to do and want to be, you know, and it's like, you know, you don't, I just let people know that, you know, the, the people who are getting that work done are putting so much time into the business end of their photography that, you know, think about really what you want to do. Is that way, you know, how you want to be living your life or you just want to be enjoying your photography as your outlet and something you want to share with people and think about, you know, what, what your goals are and how to do the, use your photography 
to what's most important for you. And, you know, I just try to make people, kind of, for me as a nature photographer, more aware of their surroundings and, you know, our earth and planet and the things that need protecting and the things that we can do to, to help that, and, you know, by sharing the beautiful images, make people think and hopefully respect all of that a little bit more. And, you know, I just try to get people to, to enjoy it and not get so caught up in the technical end. And, you know, I always see that so much when we're out there in the field with people, especially, you know, in the most beautiful place in the world, and all they're worried about is their f-stop and their shutter speed, and they're not paying any attention to, to really the world that's going on around them. You know, it's like sit back, relax, breathe, take it all in, and then you're going to do a much better job photographing it, I think, mm-hmm. if you have some personal relationship with what's going on. Do you think that, that you know, with this whole... You know, increase in interest in in photography, particularly you know nature and wildlife photography, that that somehow translated into an increased sensitivity in terms of what's happening with nature. I mean, there's a lot of talk about you know climate change, but there's a lot of things that are impacting um, a lot of these natural spaces, um, mostly involving us as, as humans because of development and all, st- and all that stuff. Do you think people are, 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 are more sensitive and concerned about it than they were 20 or 30 years ago as a result of the increased interest in, in making images of those areas? Well, I, I don't know. I'd say almost 20, 30 years ago was a good peak in the concern about the environment stuff, and then it sort of went away for a while. And now, you know, obviously with the... Um, global warming and the, the big concerns of climate change and that kind of thing, that it's coming back to, to being something that's facing people more on a regular basis. And I think, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when the air was more polluted than it was today and uh, the water was worse and that kind of stuff, it was pretty much in the forefront. And then, you know, I think photography actually helped a lot and a lot of, you know, the Clean Air Act was passed and all that kind of stuff. And things got better for a while and I think it kind of went on the back burner a bit. And now it's being pushed more uh, to the forefront. And, you know, just as photographers, I mean, we're finding that the places that we go to on a regular basis, that the timing has changed, you know, that fall color is coming much later to the southeast than, you know, it did a couple years ago. You used to be able to go, you know, to the Smokies in the beginning or middle of October and get fall color. And now it's like the first week in November. And, you know, all those things are changing and that people are becoming more aware of that. And, you know, this whole green movement hopefully will, will be a boost a little bit to, you know, to nature photographers and give us, you know, a little bit more of that outlet as far as commercial outlet goes and, you know, getting use of our pictures because now we have something that uh, people are concerned about again and, and uh, need to share that with others. Well, the last question I ask is I ask the photographer to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. So who would that be for you and why? Just one? Just one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. I guess since I already brought up Philip Hyde, I'll, I'll bring up Philip. And um, Philip Hyde um, was a student of Ansel Adams at the um, Art Institute in San Francisco and was one of the um, most influential photographers when it came to this whole environmental cause. He photographed for more of the Sierra Club um, large format exhibition books that campaigned to protect areas than any other single photographer did. And he didn't receive as much recognition as Ansel and 
some of the other people from his time period, but I think he was, and um, mostly because he was photographing in color at the time, which was a little bit ahead of his time as far as that went. And he was also kind of a uh, much more quieter personality than Ansel was, and wasn't so um, self-promoting, I guess would be the best word, but he was a very sensitive and very good photographer and did a lot for environmental causes, so... I would recommend people go check out. There's a new website. His son David is continuing on with kind of promoting his dad's work, and there's a new philippide.com website that's just been put up, so I think that would be a good place to go. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much, Lewis. I, I thank you for uh, making the time for me this morning. You're quite welcome. And it's always a pleasure speaking with you, and hopefully I'll get to see you again soon. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Candid Frame. If you have any comments or suggestions, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com, post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com, or on the Facebook fan page at facebook.com. Till next time, this is Avadian X Parabola, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.